When you need mealtime inspiration, it's worth Shopping Kroger, where you'll find over 30,000 mouth-watering choices that excite your inner foodie. And no matter what tasty choice you make, you'll enjoy our everyday low prices, plus extra ways to save, like digital coupons worth over $600 each week. You can also save up to $1 off per gallon at the pump with fuel points. More savings and more inspiring flavors make Shopping Kroger worth it every time. Kroger, fresh for everyone. Fuel restrictions apply. Completely maul his opponent, Steve Dahl. Well, you know, Steve what? Steve Dahl was trying to get an offensive going. Wait a minute. But, but what the hell but is going what? on here? But the maul, well, he just got reversed right there. Oh, the mauler runs him down. What are you talking about? Look, look here. Well, What's what the hell? Wait a minute. Somebody give me a mic. Give me a mic. What's with this? Wait, wait, we need security here. Hi. I have no idea. Hey. Wait a minute. I can't believe it. I can't believe what I'm seeing. This you people. What's with him? You know who I am. But you don't know why I'm here. This is how the Monday Night Wars really started. Not with a bang, but with a toothpick. On May 27, 1996, during an otherwise forgettable match between Mike the Mauler Enos and Steve Dahl, Scott Hall came through the crowd, climbed over the ring railing, and climbed into the ring. Enos didn't exit the ring right away. If he seemed to not know what to do, it's because he didn't. Nobody warned him about what was about to happen. You people know who I am, Hall says with a sort of eerie zen. But you don't know why I'm here. Hey, you want to go to war? You want a war? You're gonna get one. The storyline answer is easy. He was a WWE wrestler sent to invade rival company WCW. Or even if you're watching in a vacuum, he's a new, probably villainous wrestler introducing a new faction. Or even more generally than that, he's a guy playing a character taking part in a fictional storyline. In retrospect, that's easy to say, but at the time, the most basic aspect of Scott Hall appearing in WCW was up for grabs. Nobody was quite sure if it was real. It was a wrestling TV show, sure, but nobody knew where the line was. There wasn't a line. The line was being redrawn in real time. This was WCW's game changer in the Monday Night Wars. WWE was going to have to respond. What were they going to do in the face of two of their biggest stars jumping ship to the competition? What would you do? I'm guessing recast their old parts and pretend they never left isn't high on your list. From Spotify and The Ringer, this is the Book of Wrestling, 25 catchphrases that explain the attitude era. I'm David Shoemaker. In May 1996, the bad guy Razor Ramon and Big Daddy Cool Diesel left their jobs at WWE for new jobs with rival WCW. Well, to be clear, it was the guys who played those roles, Scott Hall and Kevin Nash, who left. This distinction matters. The move, as everyone involved tells it, was about the contracts. More money, guaranteed money, and fewer days at work. Novel concepts in the wrestling world. You know, I'm sure being a part of one of the most transformative angles in the history of wrestling would have been a perk too if they'd had any idea what they were getting into. But by all accounts, they didn't. 
According to Hall, they didn't even know what the plan was until WCW announcer and real-life VP Eric Bischoff picked him up from the airport that day. Even then, the plan was sort of vague. It was a surprising debut, he was a new signee, and the details, you know, how he entered, what he wore, what he would say, all of this would be a last-minute decision. It wasn't just a debut, though. It was also a noisy chess move, a salvo in pro wrestling's Monday Night Wars, the wars that began when WCW started counter-programming against Monday Night Raw, taking a nominal rivalry and upping the stakes. They were the two biggest American pro wrestling companies, the only two with real national cable distribution. But until then, they weren't rivals in the conventional sense. They weren't rivals in the sense that they were literally competing for viewers. A lot of fans, like me, watched both companies' shows, and wrestlers had moved back and forth between them over the years so much that there was almost a sense that they were intertwined. They were demonstrably different products, but they were both part of the same pro-wrestling metaverse. It was one thing to take another company's talent, but now, though, now WCW was trying to take WWE's fans. This is the war that Scott Hall is talking about. It's like if, in the soda wars, Pepsi started being sold out of Coke machines somehow, and they stole Coke's recipe too and put a big star on the front of the can that said, fuck you, Coke, or something like that. I'm losing the thread, I apologize. But anyway, this means, well, war. You gonna get anybody you want, because we- What do you mean we? We are taking over. You want to go to war? You want a war? You got one. Rewind to September 4th, 1995. That was the first episode of WCW Monday Nitro, which was going head-to-head -head with WWE's Monday Night Raw. Nitro, Night Raw, the title confusion was deliberate. It featured the surprising return of Lex Luger, who was up until the day before that a WWE wrestler. You know, due to the looseness of contracts, Luger jumped ship with minimal notice. And while this might not have been such a big deal in previous eras, it made a lot of noise when the two shows were going head-to-head -head on TV. The competition for viewership redefined the competition for talent. What's more important was the way Luger's appearance was presented. They basically called it a coup on live television. It wasn't just a political move or a taunt that went over the heads of most fans. Now the roster moves were part of the storyline. In that first promo when he invades WCW, Scott Hall mentions Billionaire Ted and the Nacho Man, references to a series of parody segments that WWE ran to poke fun at WCW during the Monday Night Wars for signing past their prime former WWE stars like Hulk Hogan and Macho Man Randy Savage. Legendary wrestling journalist Dave Meltzer noted that WCW was, quote, using McMahon's own storyline parody angles, end quote, against him. Almost certainly did not fit the mold of a washed-up old icon, though. He was current, and he was above all else cool. And by bringing up those old vignettes, he was explicitly positioning himself as an invader from WWE. Eric Bischoff has said in recent years that he, quote, wanted to blur the lines between scripted, typical wrestling presentation and reality so I could keep the audience off balance, end quote. Mission accomplished. A couple of notes here. One, Hall didn't say his name. I mean, nobody knew who Scott Hall was. And by keeping it vague, it was implied that his name was, well, Razor Ramon. He had the thick accent, the slick back hair, the toothpick. Hell, he even had a vest. Apropos of 
nothing. The, the denim vest and jeans combo is uh, really something special. It's one of my favorite parts of the whole thing. You know, jeans, no shirt, denim vest over the chest. If you don't watch wrestling, and if you don't, thank you for listening, this might not seem notable, but street clothes are serious, often hilarious signifiers in the pro wrestling sphere. Unlike almost every other fandom, in wrestling it's a novelty to see your favorites with their clothes on. When you think of Hulk Hogan or Randy Orton or whoever, you think of them in their tights. There are exceptions. You know, some wrestlers wrestled in something resembling street clothes, and other wrestlers would sometimes put on, you know, jeans and t-shirts for a Texas death match, but for most of them, well, you had to wait for a ringside interview to see them in their civvies. It's part of why we remember Ric Flair's fancy suits, because they stood in such stark contrast to his normal, you know, bathrobe and briefs look. To see Razor Ramon in jeans and a denim vest, and not his ring gear, and not his kayfabe street clothes of silk shirts and slacks, well, that meant something unusual was going on. Not something stylish necessarily, but something, well, real. Where is it? The big surprise. I mean, I heard a lot of talk, but where's the walk? What? I'm here. Where is it? Two weeks later, Kevin Nash showed up as Hall's partner in this invasion. Nash, for the record, was wearing a black short sleeve button-down shirt tucked into black jeans and a baseball cap that was sort of perched atop his huge mane of long brown hair. It looked like what an algorithm would think a cool person dressed like if the algorithm didn't take into account that the person was a six-foot-ten long-haired weightlifter. You've been sitting out here for six months running your mouth. This is where the big boys play, huh? Look at the adjective. Play. We ain't here to play. <laughs> Adjective. Um, okay, for the record, that's a verb. But part of speech confusion aside, it was quite a moment. Nash didn't get a name either. The implication was obviously that he was Diesel from WWE. They called the duo the Outsiders for obvious reasons, but it also allowed them to not give them names. Then, several weeks later, their mysterious third partner was revealed to be none other than Hulk Hogan who turned heel and became Hollywood Hogan, and the New World Order, the NWO, was born. Hulk, Hulk, Hulk. What is oh he doing? Oh my God! Is he the third man? He's the third man! What oh. the hell is going on here? Hulk Hogan has betrayed WCW! He is the third man Look at in this. this picture! Oh my God! Excuse me. What in the world are you thinking? Me, Gene, the first thing you need to do is to tell these people to shut up if you want to hear what I got to say. I tell all of this to tell you, well, I, I tell you all of this because it's important and it's an awesome story, but mostly I tell you all of this to tell you about what happened next. What happened in WWE? We know the Austin 316 promo had just happened, but as of yet, they weren't really capitalizing on it. We know that there were hints of the new era that was to come, but at this moment, WWE's on-screen product had nothing on the Outsiders invading WCW. It was the most shocking, realest thing that had happened in wrestling this side of, I don't know, the four horsemen breaking Dusty Rhodes' arm. I know what you're thinking. It's just a wrestling storyline, right? I mean, it's obviously not real. Well, let me tell you, <laughs> fans, because I was one of them, fans didn't know what to think. This sort of storyline had played out before, Bischoff was inspired particularly by an angle in New Japan Pro Wrestling. 
but for most of the people watching it, it was something totally new. It was shocking. It was confusing. And it was appointment television. But was it legal? Weird question, right? It's the question that's behind this whole story, though. I need an expert. Hey, this is Mike Dawkins. Uh, I'm an intellectual property attorney at the law firm of Shoemaker, Loop, and Kendrick. And I do a lot of work with professional wrestlers, helping protect their gimmicks and their, their intellectual property. But I personally have a background in engineering. I'm a patent lawyer. I've helped people acquire their patents. But uh, these days, my focus is on, on trademarks and copyrights and things like that. There we go. If there's a likelihood of confusion, there's a likelihood of confusion. The fact that they were directly competitive just bolsters the argument of not only is there a likelihood of confusion, it's it's a surety or it has actually happened. There is actual confusion about what's happening that Razor Ramon's appearing on Monday Nitro. For the record, Dawkins' firm spells Shoemaker with a U. I don't want there to be any confusion there. Wouldn't want any lawyers to think I was stealing their gimmick. So, as groundbreaking as the invasion angle was, something even more novel, more unexpected followed. WWE filed suit against WCW in June 1996, saying, quote, WCW began to implement plans to deceive the public about the status of Hall and Nash. And they did it, quote, to deceive and confuse consumers by falsely suggesting that Hall and Nash were not and would not be affiliated with WCW when they appeared on Nitro. Probably not coincidentally, WCW was already seeming to get cold feet. Perhaps sensing that they were, you know, edging close to crossing a legal line, they tried to make it very clear that this was not technically a WWE invasion. At the Great American Bash, Bischoff interviewed Holland Nash, and he put it to them directly. Before we go any further, let's clear one thing up. Do you work for the WWF? No. How about it? No. There's plausible deniability built in here. I mean, Hall and Nash had both previously worked in WCW before their WWE stints, and both were sort of comically underutilized. Uh, Nash played a character called Oz. Please just Google it. So they both had a personal stake in this invasion outside of their implicit involvement with WWE. But it was still a balancing act. Here's Mike Dawkins again. You're allowed to tell consumers, hey, you don't know who we are, you don't know our brand, but we are similar to this other brand that you probably do know. You can do that. That's allowed. That is not illegal. That's why when guys get released and, and ladies get released and they go do appearances and things like that, it'll say formerly known as FKA, whatever, and it'll have their WWE trademark. You can do that and WWE can't stop it. What WWE can stop is that you have FKA, Razor Ramon in a huge font, and then having teeny tiny font, Scott Hall. That you can't do. You can't overemphasize somebody else's trademark. You have to emphasize your trademark and underemphasize somebody else's. Again, this is from WWE's lawsuit. Quote, Bischoff had no reason to even ask the above question unless he knew the consumers who bought the pay-per-view had been deliberately misled into believing that Hall and Nash were affiliated with WWE. You can go back and read the transcript. In their depositions, Hall and Nash are straight up joking around. And the legal haggling sometimes feels like, you know, when a heel wrestler hits his opponent with a chair when the ref's back is turned. And then the heel and the babyface's partner are arguing with the ref. You know, sure, maybe I did, but did you see me do it? And then, Come on, ref, you know what's right. The ref's decision, whatever he decides to do, it doesn't really matter. It's separate from reality. We all already know what happened.
Temporarily setting aside the legal question, we know that some fans must have believed that Hall and Nash were WWE operatives because some of them believe something even less plausible, something much dumber than Hall and Nash leading an invasion into enemy territory. They actually believe that they were coming back to WWE. You know, Kevin, I've been in this great sport over 20 years, and right here tonight, I am going to break the biggest story of my broadcasting career. Big Daddy Cool Diesel and the bad guy, Razor Ramon, are on their way back to the World Wrestling Federation. I have that on very good authority from some very reliable sources. My sources tell me, and they're very reliable sources, I've had them for years, and that is the fact that Big Daddy Cool Diesel and the bad guy, Razor Ramon, are without a doubt on their way back to the World Wrestling Federation. That's the voice of legendary wrestling announcer Jim Ross. Good old JR. Pound for pound, the best to ever strap on the headset and call a match. Here, he's acting as a wrestling journalist, reporting, or rather, reporting in quotation marks, that yes, Razor and Diesel were coming back to WWE. Spoiler alert, they were not coming back. At least not how any reasonable person would understand that to be true. When Hall and Nash left for WCW, they left with Vince McMahon's blessing. He said so, and at the very least, he definitely had the opportunity to match the contracts that WCW had offered them. But when they got there, and when they debuted as supposed emissaries from WWE, well, Vince apparently took exception. Supposedly, it was longtime WWE lawyer Jerry McDevitt who first uttered the letters IP, intellectual property, as in Hall and Nash may be gone, but we still own the characters they used to play. And so, WWE decided to bring back Razor Ramon and Diesel, the characters played by different actors. Inner Rick Bogner, a journeyman wrestler called Big Titan, who could do a passable Razor Ramon impression. Actually, a pretty good Razor Ramon impression. And in the role of Big Daddy Cool Diesel, Glenn Jacobs. You might know him as Kane, half-brother of The Undertaker. Or you might know him as the mayor of Knox County, Tennessee. My first character in WWE was the infamous Isaac Yankin DDS wrestling dentist. That didn't work out too well for me. I couldn't sink my teeth into it, pun intended. So, but, but they kept me around and they uh, gave me an, another gimmick, fake diesel. The idea behind that was that Jim Ross had turned heel and was going to prove to Vince McMahon that he was the star maker and that anyone could portray these characters. To me, the story here gets a little unclear because... Jacobs is insisting the whole idea was built around this meta concept that Jim Ross, who was in real life the head of talent relations and one of WWE's you know, recruiters, was in character upset because he never got credit for helping develop all this talent. Well, he had a laundry list of more fact-based complaints for the record, like this one. And then on Super Bowl Sunday in 1994, I woke up with an affliction called Bell's Palsy. And my entire left side of my face looked like I had a stroke. You think I like that? You think I like that my left eye doesn't open all the way because I got sick? Let me tell you how warm-hearted Mr. McMahon is. Mr. McMahon called me into his office on February the 11th, 1994, and he fired my ass. So, okay, JR is disgruntled. He's mad at Vince McMahon and WWE for firing him, amongst other things. And now, back in their employ, he has chosen to recreate two popular wrestlers to 
get back at the establishment? Why? Uh, to, to prove anybody could do it? To make WWE look like fools? To, I don't know. But however the idea began, it certainly felt like what we got was either a half-baked idea or a quick rewrite of a previous draft. For one thing, after JR told everybody that they were coming, his assurances were quickly rebutted by WWE President Gorilla Monsoon on the September 16th episode of Raw. Monsoon was not really the president. He was a former announcer, former wrestler who was playing this role. But in character, he seemed to be in real-life damage control mode, on screen strictly to minimize fans' expectations. I would like to apologize to all the fans of the WWF who feel that they have been hoodwinked or misled by Jim Ross's statement. And with that in mind... In character, in storyline, they're starting to paint JR as a heel. But what's weird is that JR is basically Vince McMahon's proxy here. Vince was the creative genius who made Razor and Diesel into stars, and Vince was the one who wasn't getting credit for their success in the NWO. But Vince was still playing the straight man when he was on TV. Remember, even though they make jokes about him being the owner, he doesn't come out and become Mr. McMahon until the following year. But JR defiantly calls him out as the owner in this very promo. Vince fired my ass. That's taken as a given. But instead of playing the role of heel provocateur himself, a role that he would eventually go on to play and play better than anyone ever, McMahon put the task to JR, who, lest it need be said, was not a convincing heel. A convincing curmudgeon, sure, but you could turn the whole company heel before you could get the fans to boo good old JR. Jim Ross was just never accepted as a heel by the audience. He was just too much of a babyface as a commentator. I've been very busy, and right now, I want to bring back one of your favorites. He's the bad guy, Razor Ramon. Wait a minute. Wait. King, that's, that's not the original. I think this is, uh... How do you like that, WWF? How do you like Razor Ramon? Like Razor How do you like that, big man? Like he's a little bigger than the last time I saw him. Here's Kane again. You know, they had some of Kevin's old outfits, dye your hair, I already had a goatee. Okay, you can do the sidewalk slam, you do the high boot, you can do a jackknife powerbomb. Go get him, kid. You know, now part of what we did do is like try to get some of the mannerisms with watch tape, especially probably with Razor, though, because, you know, Razor's character was much more defined as far as being a character. Kevin had a certain way of moving and doing stuff, but... Scott really had some signature things that weren't wrestling moves that helped make the character recognizable, I guess, were unique to that character. According to Jacobs, the most literal reading of the storyline is the correct one, even if it flies in the face of any sort of pro wrestling logic. What I thought about, I was like, this is actually a pretty cool idea. And it shouldn't be you know, misconstrued that it was making fun of Diesel, Kevin Nash, or Scott Hall with the, the Razor of Own character. You know, it was just taking those characters in a different context but you know it wasn't meant to ridicule them in any way and it wasn't meant to ridicule me or rick bogner who is the guy who is the fake uh, razor even though they're not literally saying that this is hall and nash they are borrowing from wcw's reality-based you know winking storytelling Hell, they're borrowing from WCW's idea of putting them together as a team. Razor and Diesel were not a team before the Outsiders got together. 
WWE's legal case is basically that Hall and Nash were using their WWE characters under different names, that the outsiders relied on the resemblance to Razor and Diesel all the way down to the toothpick. But the new Razor and Diesel didn't make sense at all without the winking reference to WCW. That was the point, explicitly or implicitly. And legally, that's fine. But it's a distinction worth making. In the end, the gimmick was an unmitigated disaster. Nobody cared about these guys. WWE might have proven their legal case about owning the IP, but they failed in the abstract because fans got to choose in real time between Hall and Nash and Razor and Diesel. And the Outsiders won, hands down. I asked attorney Mike Dawkins about it, whether if he had been advising WWE back then, if he would have endorsed bringing back the characters as a mean of, you know, IP flag planting. You would have been pro fake Razor and fake Diesel from a legal point of view. 100%. But not from a creative point of view. <laughs> yeah, I mean, it's the doing of something that's doomed for failure. And I, I would be surprised if anybody would honestly look us in the eyes and say, well, we thought this was going to take off. We didn't think it mattered. Didn't you be Scott Hall and Kevin Nash? It could have been Glenn Jacobs and, and Rick Bogner. It, it just didn't matter. It, anybody can look me in the eye and tell me that, honestly, I'd tell them they're a crazy person because it is specific to the person. You can't just take uh, any old guy and put him in the, the yellow tights and the yellow boots and he's Hulk Hogan. What made Razor Ramon and Diesel work was Scott Hall and Kevin Nash. Maybe this is obvious, but it's at the very heart of the Attitude Era. People will still fantasize about what would have happened if Hall and Nash had stayed in WWE. But if anything, you could argue that it was their WWE characters that were holding them back. Within a few weeks, JR was back on commentary duty, and the replacement Razor and Diesel were written off TV without explanation. Here's Jacobs again. It just didn't work out that way. Like I said, many times in WWE, the storyline kind of writes itself. And, you know, sometimes that the audience warm up to stuff and sometimes they don't. And sometimes things aren't explained that well so that they can warm up to it. Did you feel like they gave up on it too quickly? No, I don't think so. Um, it just ran its course and it didn't work. And sometimes that happens. You can't force feed stuff to our audience. That's just not going to work. I mean, they're too smart and <laughs> they're too independent minded for that. So sometimes just have to say, OK, this is it. And you kind of take your losses and move on. They weren't totally done with the characters, though. The duo of Bogner Razor and Jacobs Diesel continued on outside of the spotlight, but still under WWE contract, when the company lent them out to other promotions to work in Mexico and Memphis. And oddly, the characters worked better there because they were booked as big timers from WWE who thought they were too good for small time Memphis. Jerry Lawler, the WWE commentator who owned and ran the Memphis promotion, had worked this angle years before with legendary comedian Andy Kaufman. Here's a clip of USWA announcer Lance Russell, the constantly exasperated narrator of my own childhood, uh, talking to Bogner and Jacobs as Razor and Diesel when they appear in Memphis. They hit a lot of the same notes as Kaufman did. They're big stars slumming it in small-time Tennessee. But for the first time, there's a ring of truth to Bogner's Hall imitation. Talking about the bad guy, Razor Ramon, and Big Daddy Cool Diesel come down from the WWF to tell us poor deprived people in the wrestling world how the other half live out there. Razor Ramon. We live like kings, not like you southern slick little hillbillies. <laughs> we ride in limousines and private jets, first class, all the way, man. 
Instead of pretending to be something they weren't, they leaned into exactly what they were. In USWA, uh, again, the, the audience was different. It wasn't necessarily a WWE audience, right? It was, it was USWA audience. So there again, we were kind of the big shots from WWE and it didn't matter uh, who, it was just the fact that we were from WWE, uh, which made us not likable. So yeah, it did work a little differently. And then it also, you know, Lawler's a genius and his booking's great. And that's what it was. You were just portrayed as the invaders, like you said, really second rate, uh, but invaders who were there to uh, take over the territory. And that just gave you natural, you know, natural heat and natural animosity from the audience because no matter who you are, if you're coming in bragging you're from WWE, they're going to be like, well, who do you think you are just coming in here and acting like a big shot? Yeah. Um, and it probably did help that, you know, we weren't the real big shots, <laughs> just were in <laughs> our own mind. And then Lawler, of course, was genius with that. He had, like, you point out the Andy Kaufman thing, uh, but, you know, he'd also uh, later would do a thing with uh, ECW with some crossover where it was the same thing. Like, you had ECW guys going down, like Taz and Tommy Dreamer, and, Waller is defending the honor of USWA against these this these guys from New Jersey and ECW coming down trying to put his territory out of business. But the real antecedent to what they did in Memphis was, you guessed it, the outsiders in WCW. Razor and Diesel invading another territory to prove WWE's supremacy. It's a great gimmick. It just couldn't work in WWE, and for a lot of reasons. I'm not sure that even the most high-concept presentation of this angle would have seemed like anything other than bellyaching on WWE's part. And remember, this didn't come at a time when WWE was consistently messing around with our expectations. Everything they did at this point was straightforward, lowest common denominator stuff. The Attitude Era was percolating, but WWE didn't fully know it yet. The stories they were telling didn't respect the audience's intelligence. At this point, they couldn't have expected the audience to appreciate fake Razor and fake Diesel from a meta standpoint, and the fans sure as hell weren't going to accept them as replacements. Even if Jacobs could learn the side slam, and even if Bogner could imitate Hall's hey yo, it didn't matter because they weren't them. No matter how they tried to rationalize the angle, WWE wasn't being straight with its fans. Card subject to change, sure, but you can't bill a wrestler and send out a body double. Well, unless it's The Undertaker, but that's a story for another day. Do you feel like at that point, like, you are Diesel? Kevin Nash is no longer Diesel? Like, I am the Diesel now? No, no, Kevin will always be Diesel. I always always be the fake Diesel. They're <laughs> different characters. Thankfully for Jacobs, he didn't spend the rest of his career pretending to be Diesel. He went on to be Kane. More on that in a few weeks. Bogner left the business shortly thereafter and became a Buddhist life coach and really seemed to have found peace. He died in 2019. The guy he was imitating, though, Scott Hall, he died just a few weeks ago. Here's what I wrote about it. At a basic level, pro wrestling is about effortlessness. The art of making staged violence look smooth and natural. The ability to move with utter confidence through an utter sham. Nobody made it look easier than Scott Hall. From the moment he came out through the curtain with his hands extended, palms down on either side of himself, tiptoeing down the aisle and into the ring, grin on his face, toothpick in his mouth, to the moment he lifted his opponent high above his head, backward, into the razor's edge. One of the most stunning and perilous moves in wrestling. A move Hall made look both devastating and easy. That matters for the Outsiders' debut in WCW. 
Hall made it look so effortless that it didn't seem like a storyline. It didn't seem like a gimmick. It seemed real. When he said, you want a war, it seemed plausible. The Monday Night Wars, he, I mean, he spoke it into existence. As far as the replacement razor goes, well, listen, there's no tribute that will ever do Hall justice, but I have to say this. There are a lot of people who get called one of a kind. People say lots of folks did whatever they do better than anyone else could do it. But Scott Hall was the rare instance where we know that that's true. Nobody could do it like Scott Hall. WWE won that lawsuit. Eventually, WWE would win the Monday Night Wars, but at that moment in time, WWE looked at the NWO, the most revolutionary angle in American wrestling history, and seemed to totally miss the point. Moving on from fake Razor and Diesel was sadly the boldest move they could make. Next week, they try something even bolder. I wrote and reported this podcast. The show is executive produced by superstar Bill Simmons, Sean the Strangler Fennessy, and Jumpin' Juliet Lit. Our producers are B. Brian Walters, Taskmaster Troy Farkas, Cassius Freakin' Fleming, The Z Man Dan Zapillo, and Vivacious Vikram Patel. Sound design and final mixing by superstar Scott Summerville. The music you hear in this episode is from Epidemic Sound and Blue Dot Sessions. Copy editing by Craig the Animal Gaines and fact checking by Killer Kellen B. Coates. Art direction and illustration by me. I'm David Shoemaker, aka The Masked Man. Thanks for listening.